Some of you I know or you recognize this bald head for others. It's your first time seeing this bald head, not Jeremy's, all right? So um, I'm Chad Mosteller, and I've known Jeremy and for a long time, and he's gracious to let me preach while he's getting, I think, some rest, I think, but uh, could be wrong. But uh, yeah, so I'll be with you this weekend and next weekend, and I'm, I'm excited for that. Well, I tell you what, I want to do something, you know, I want to read, if you're familiar with a guy named Eugene Peterson, he's like a hero of mine, he wrote uh, or translated the Bible in what's called the message, all right, and so it basically takes the, the uh, maybe a little bit more difficult to understand language of, uh, of scripture, and he wrote it in contemporary language, and I just want you to listen to Galatians 5, uh, beginning in, uh, I believe, uh, 14 is where I started, and it'll be up on the screen uh, as well. Let's see, Um, I'm going to start. For everything we know about God's Word is summed up in a single sentence, love others as you love yourself. That's an act of true freedom. If you bite and ravage each other, watch out. In no time at all, you will be annihilating each other, and where will your precious freedom be then? My counsel is this. Live freely, animated and motivated by God's Spirit. Then you won't feed the compulsions of selfishness, for there is a root of sinful self-interest in us that is at odds with a free spirit, just as the free spirit is incompatible with selfishness. These two ways of life are antithetical so that you cannot live at times one way and at times another way according to how you feel on any given day. Why don't you choose to be led by the Spirit and so escape the erratic compulsions of a law-dominated existence? It is obvious what kind of life develops out of trying to get your own way all the time. Repetitive, loveless, cheap sex, a stinking accumulation of mental and emotional garbage, frenzied and joyless grabs for happiness, trinket gods, magic show religion, paranoid loneliness, cutthroat competition, all-consuming yet never, never satisfied wants, a brutal temper. An impotence to love or be loved, divided homes and divided lives, small-minded and lopsided pursuits, the vicious habit of depersonalizing everyone into a rival, uncontrolled and uncontrollable addictions, ugly parodies of community. I could go on. This isn't the first time I have warned you, you know. If you use your freedom this way, you will not inherit God's kingdom. But what happens when we live God's way? He brings gifts into our lives much the same way that the fruit appears in an orchard. Things like affection for others, exuberance about life, serenity. We develop a willingness to stick with things, a sense of compassion in the heart, and a conviction that a basic holiness permeates things and people. We find ourselves involved in loyal commitments, not needing to force our way in life, able to marshal and direct our energies wisely. Legalism is helpless in bringing this about. It only gets in the way. Among those who belong to Christ, everything connected with getting our own way and mindlessly responding to what everyone else calls necessities is killed off for good. 
crucified. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Uh, Father, we um, thank you for the gift of this morning. And I don't know what folks are bringing in here, but I do pray that they leave here better uh, than they were before. And so, God, would you just have your way with us during this, uh, during this time that we gather together as the church. And so, Father, we thank you. It's in your name. Amen. Walter Brueggemann, an American pastor and theologian, says it's better to live a faithful life than a long life. I want you to let that sit for a moment. It's better to live a faithful life than a long life. When I was a kid, I was consumed with drawing. And particularly like animation. Back in the day when they did animation on paper, these cartoonists, how they could bring a flat piece of paper to life. It was like mesmerizing for me. And that's what we think about when we think about the Holy Spirit. It's this animating life force. You see, our lives are flat before Christ, but have now been animated by the Spirit of God. And the Apostle Paul here is telling the readers in Galatia uh, this morning that the fruit is what marks the life of the follower of Jesus. If you are a child of God, you are the first fruit of this spirit-animated life. The spirit is like a new operating system, if you will, when you receive Christ. We are no longer operating from what the Apostle Paul calls the flesh or sinful desires, which another way of saying that is, is the image of this natural pull, almost like a gravitational pull that is in our hearts. It pulls everything to the self. But the whole law is fulfilled in one word as he writes there, loving one's neighbor as oneself. You see, the moment I think I am not selfish, I am reminded of this inward pull towards myself Whenever my routine is disrupted, I'm a big routine guy. And so when my routine is disrupted, I'm reminded just how selfish I am. Or it's when the kid has trouble going to bed like last night and really every night for the last three years. And it's midnight and I need to be up at five, you know, and I'm like, please go to bed. I'm reminded of how selfish I am or when I go to sit down at the end of the day on the couch and my wife, as soon as my rear end hits the couch, says, I'd really like something salty and sweet right now. And I'm like, I'm going to give you something salty. It may not be sweet. All right. These are the moments I'm reminded of just how selfish I still am. I'm a work in progress. Well, the church is to be this beautiful orchard together growing this kind of fruit. And that's the series that you've been in. And you know what? The world is actually longing for this fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This fruit is grown over time. It's not instantaneous. Maybe you think about it this way. We become gardeners growing this fruit. The fruit does not appear suddenly or just because we believe. Some think that just because you believe that the fruit automatically appears, you become a Christian and suddenly your entire character changes. It doesn't work that way. 
The 20th century theologian Karl Barth, I have a picture of him, is known by some as the greatest theologian of his time, producing volumes and volumes on Christian doctrine and living. If you were to Google his name right now, everything would come up about Karl Barth. But it was recently discovered in the last three to four years that he had what appeared to be an adult lifelong affair with his assistant. To the point of inviting his assistant in to live with him, catch this, while living with his wife and his family. And this happened. His wife then battled severe depression, would later talk about the toll it took on their kids, battling even suicide. But Karl Barth felt like this was a tension, and the tension was given from God that he was not to divorce his wife, but was also not to deprive himself of this affair with his assistant. He said, God, God gave him this, this holy affection towards someone else. And this was the state his family lived in while he is producing some of the greatest works on Christian doctrine and Christian living. It's not ironic that documentary after documentary continues to show up about Christian leaders that have fallen. You see, many of the conversions that have taken place through some of the greatest names like John Wesley or Martin Luther, catch this, they were clergy before the conversion happened after they were clergy after they were in the church. You see, just because you believe doesn't mean that your character is automatically transformed. It requires a synergy between us and the Spirit. The Spirit works with our spirit. It's like a dance, if you will. We should be in lockstep with the Spirit in our lives. If I've realized anything, I've concluded this. It's not about the craft of my sermon, but the constant care of my soul. I can produce great sermons all day long. I don't mean that arrogantly, but 20 years of doing this, I can do this. I can particularly show up to a church like this that doesn't ever see me, certainly doesn't see my family. And you may walk out of here and say, man, that was a great sermon. But then all of a sudden you run into a restaurant and you see maybe the way that I'm talking to my wife or the way that I'm talking to my kids. And it doesn't match the sermon that you just heard preached. You can fake it to make it all day long, folks. But at the end of the day, I don't want a documentary about myself. And I certainly don't want someone to interview my wife and talk about the guy that produced great sermons was not the guy that cared for his soul and the soul of his family. It's not instantaneous. You can actually believe in God and bear no fruit. And both Jesus and the Bible agree that to be a follower of Jesus is to live a fruitful life. In fact, I think Scripture will go as far as to say, if there is no fruit, you really can't call yourself a son or daughter of God. And that's harsh, but that's just real. Jesus goes as far as to say what? He says, you will know a tree by what? By its fruit. By its fruit. There's nothing worse than getting a banana. I love bananas. There's nothing worse than getting a banana that has been severely bruised. (laughs) 
When you bite into that banana and you don't see the bruised side and it's soft, it's not meant to be that way. It doesn't make it any less of a banana. But you see, the integrity of the fruit has been hurt. I'm big on apples. Honeycrisp is where it's at. All right, you bring me Fiji, you bring me any of these other, other apples. No, they do not match Honeycrisp. I want a crunch when I bite into my apple. I don't want it to be soft. The integrity of the fruit matters. It's not just about what's on the outside, it's about what's on the inside too. You see, the Spirit is always playing the long game, much like gardening. Faithfulness becomes the daily accumulation of small decisions along the way. It is a long obedience in the same direction, as one author put it. The Scripture describes this process of growth as becoming. We become the gardeners that help cultivate the atmosphere by which fruit can happen. We are not the ones growing the fruit but we are the ones cultivating an environment. It requires something outside of ourselves to grow the fruit. We either hinder or help the growth take place. You see, the spirit in partnership with our spirit helps us become these kinds of people that display this kind of fruit. I cannot change my character, but I can either help or hinder the character growth that needs to take place in my life. The transformation is slow, much like the process of gardening. We do not pursue this fruit so God will love us. We pursue this fruit because God loved us first. And that's what separates Christianity from any other faith. He's given us this. He loved us first. Therefore, our obedience flows out of that love that he has for us. Let me take this illustration one step further. There is a continual living and dying and dying and living process when it comes to fruit. Fruit is most enjoyed when, not when it is living, when it's dying. When you take it away or take it off the tree or remove it from the vine, it's most enjoyed when we are taking pleasure in eating that fruit. And that's the same thing with this Christian life. It is most enjoyed when we're in this process of continuing to die to the old self, as the Bible puts it, and putting on this new self. That's the tension we live with. That's the tension that hits the reality of my my couch in the living room when my wife asks for something sweet and salty. It's a constant dying to self. And I use an ordinary moment like that because a lot of times we want God to show up in the extraordinary and we think faithfulness is only in the extraordinary, but faithfulness is when really no one is looking and it's a small decision to say, you know what? I'd love to get up and get you that sweet and salty snack you want. That's the reality. See, today we will be looking at faithfulness or what Eugene Peterson calls loyal commitment. And I want to begin by discussing when this fruit really begins to grow and then three barriers that prevent this specific fruit from growing. Well, Luke 2, one of the gospel writers, tells us that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature. One of the core doctrines of the church for 2,000 years has been that Christ is fully human and yet fully divine, and the two cannot compromise one another. 
Now, that may be a mystery to a lot of us, including myself, but it doesn't make it any less true. You see, he was born as a baby. He did have a messy diaper. He grew up as a toddler. And in Luke 2, we catch up with Jesus at age 12 in the temple where his family would have made the annual trip to celebrate the Passover, God's rescue for his people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. And his family were returning home. And three days into the journey, they realized that Jesus was not with them. Now, this sounds like two careless parents, but I've actually hiked the trail that they were on leaving Jerusalem or going towards Jerusalem, and it is very narrow and a lot of spots with a massive drop-off. And in our hyper-individualized culture, we only think as family is our immediate family, my wife and three kiddos in my case. But for them, they travel with an entourage, And it wasn't just flesh and blood human beings, but it was also animals to be able to stay. And so for them to get three days into a journey, it is not carelessness that they realize that their son is not with them. And so when they realize this, they make their way back to the temple. And this is when we find Jesus saying that he is in his father's house Now, this is a conundrum for a guy named Joseph. And we're going to talk a little bit about Joseph. We don't get a single word of Joseph throughout the Gospels. Not a single one. We do of Mary. And so when you see this, you see that you have an adopted father of Jesus. And I believe that Jesus, as he was growing in wisdom and stature, he is following in the steps of his adopted father and seeing the loyal commitment that he had to his son, Jesus. And catch this, Joseph is playing the gardener, but it is not dependent on him. He knows it's outside of himself that will grow this fruit. But he knows the commitment that he's made. Now, if you were raised Catholic, there is a lot of attention paid to Mother Mary. And I believe we've swung the pendulum the whole other way in our tradition to where we really don't talk about Mary as much. And I think there's, there's a fine balance between the two. But you do not hear as much about Joseph. We hear about Joseph once a year at Christmas. And sadly, I keep picturing Vince Vaughn playing Joseph in Four Christmases. This child is a blessing to the both of us. We shall name him Jesus, glory of God. Woman, swaddle the baby. You know? (laughs) And if you haven't seen that movie, you're welcome. All right? So... We, uh, but we don't get a single word from Joseph throughout any of the four Gospels, but his character is all over the place. You see, Joseph was blue-collar. He was a carpenter, likely not working with wood, but more of a stonemason. And I've seen the place where he probably worked, a place called Sapporo. And Sapporo was actually responsible for building one of the palaces, one of the seven to nine palaces that King Herod had. 
Joseph was probably one of the stonemasons that was building the temple of a paranoid king that would later threaten the life of his son Jesus. And God spoke to Joseph through dreams. You see, the question is, do we believe what the biblical authors believed? God speaks to us today through dreams, scripture, prayer, and spirit-filled friendships. The number one way Muslims are coming to faith throughout the world, do you know what this is? It's through dreams. It's through dreams. We know it's his voice when the voice matches as the character of God we see throughout the whole of Scripture, prayer and spirit-filled relationships or friendships. That's why I mention all four of those, because all four of those are congruent. There is an integrity there to the voice and discerning the voice of God is you really go to it in prayer, that you look at the scriptures and you see, does this match the character of God, what I think that I'm hearing? And then I take that to wise counsel in my life or spiritual friendships that have walked this road longer than I have. My daughter has this uncanny ability to recognize the voice of an actor or actress when she's watching a show or a movie with me. And she's like, Dad, thinking back to this animated film, isn't that the voice from this animated film that we watched like three years ago? I mean, it's uncanny. She has this voice recognition kind of built into her. And we have that voice recognition that's built into all of us. The question is, do we discern the voice that we're hearing? And a lot of times the voice sounds more like ourselves than it does God. I wonder if our ears really are attuned to the voice of God in our lives as to where he is helping us grow this fruit. You see, Jesus, Joseph paid attention to the voice. Joseph had a dream that he was to marry an unwed mother, fiance. He knew how this would reflect. He was planning to divorce her quietly, which speaks of his character even then. But when he hears, when he has this dream and the angel tells him, you're to marry this woman, and he would not consummate the marriage until the baby was born. And then, it's, then he has a dream that he's to, he's to take his family, he's to move out of Bethlehem, and to go to where? Egypt. Egypt has a rich history. They were celebrating the Passover out of Egypt. Now he's being told to go back to Egypt and take this child that God told him through the angel that he was to name, and his name would be Jesus, which means God is with us. He's to take him to Egypt. Then he receives another dream later on. And that dream told him to leave Egypt and do what? Return to Nazareth. Now, there's no real history of Nazareth throughout the scripture. Literally, it means out of the stump. You ever looked at a stump and you just said, that is one beautiful stump. Like... That is a beautiful stump. No, we look at trees and we see the trees and all of this stuff. But for Nazareth, it's like, why am I to go back to Nazareth? But he does it. Each time he does it, and I believe it's not as much about the destinations as it is about the faithfulness that's growing in the in-between. You see, we get consumed with the destination. 
What's God's will for my life? What am I to do next? Where am I to go? Who am I to marry? Whatever it may be. And we miss the in-between. And that's really where the growth is. Believe me, I'm living this right now. I recently resigned my role of 16 years at the same church that I've been with. Because both my wife and I felt like we were hearing the voice of the Lord. We sought counsel. It was matching all four things that I was saying. What did not make sense is I had nowhere to go. And I got three kids. But we knew it's what we were supposed to do. Ironically, Jeremy asked me to preach on faithfulness and (laughs) self-control. I ain't good at waiting. I'm just going to tell you all, I am not good at waiting. I thought by the time I would preach this sermon, I would know where we were to be. And that's not the case. I have done this once before, but had no kids then. And you see, this is the crucible. The fruit of one's character is what spills out when the pressure is on. It's the in-between when the fruit grows the most. It is in between the dear God and amen. It is in between the goodbyes and the hellos. It is in between the doctor's visit and the diagnosis. It is in between the winter season and the spring season. It is in between the addiction and the recovery. It is in between the wedding and the marriage. It is in between the resignation and the new job. God does not exist apart from reality. This is real life. And as I mentioned before, some of us assume faithfulness is only found in extraordinary circumstances, but it is seen often in the ordinary circumstances. Some of us look for these extraordinary ways for God to show up, but God is in the ordinary moments as well. It's the mother saying yes to the hungry infant in the middle of the night. It's the friend that shows up for the other friend struggling. It's the patient, trusting God. It's the patient, trusting God in the midst of the return cancer. It's the forgiving, hus- it's the forgiving husband after the adulterous affair. It's the employee refusing to compromise to satisfy the unethical boss. That's where you see faithfulness. That's where you see loyal commitment. I remember reading Bear Grylls, uh, Man vs. Wild, any fans in here? All right, old show. But Bear Grylls, autobiography of his first pursuit to climb Everest. And this came one year after he suffered a broken back from a parachute that failed to open, falling thousands of feet. He broke his back. And he was lying in bed recovering feeling as though all the training towards climbing Everest was no longer possible. But it was his mother that told him this definition of commitment. And I have it on the screen. Commitment is choosing to do the thing you said you do, even when the feeling you'd originally said you'd do it in was no longer there. Think about that for a moment. Doing the thing that you said you do, even when the feeling that you originally said you would do it in, is no longer there. He climbed Everest one year later, becoming the youngest Brit to do so at 23 years old. You see, doing the thing that you said you do, even when the feeling you said you do it in is no longer there. 
Y'all know how many husbands over 20 years of pastoral ministry I've talked to that give me this excuse. I no longer feel in love with my wife. I need something else. And they try to justify the affair. I've had that. Marriages I've looked up to. Or the folks that just want another job because they think it's greener on the other side. Or maybe it's the protective parent that that just wants to just keep our kids so safe all of the time that we never allow their own faith to grow and their own trust to grow in those moments. These are those moments that faithfulness begins to grow. And it's when we do these hard commitments. I want to discuss briefly three barriers or hindrances for growth and faithfulness. One is competition. Two is careerism. And three is comparison. One, competition. Ironically, throughout all the Old Testament, the people of God are described as this beautiful fertile orchard or taking us back to the first pages of the Bible in the Garden of Eden. Jesus, early in his ministry, gave what we know to be the Sermon on the Mount, his magnum opus. And Jesus is essentially providing his followers with the new operating system, getting to the root of the flesh system they were operating from currently, where everything centered around the self and promoting self. He discussed making oaths or keeping promises. You may recall this when he says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Jesus knew something we do not catch at first glance. He goes right to the heart of why people swear oaths. Dallas Willard writes in his book, The Divine Conspiracy. Listen to this. Jesus knew that they do it to impress others with their sincerity and reliability. He's talking about the religious leaders when they make these big oaths of saying God swears or God says this, and they add that on to whatever they say. And he says they do this to impress others with their sincerity or reliability and thus gain acceptance of what they are saying and what they want. It is simply a device of manipulation designed to override the judgment and will of the ones they are focusing upon, to push them aside rather than respecting them and leaving their decision and action strictly up to them. He's saying it's a device of manipulation. I've always told my kiddos, tried to, few rules in the house, but one of the things is I'm like, no matter what, always tell the truth. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. When people hear you at your word, you never have to follow it up with I promise or I swear. Let your yes be yes or your no be no. Be be truth tellers even when it hurts. Now listen, they got the same gravitational pull that I have in my heart and I know when my kid is lying. (laughs) Just like I'm a terrible liar. So it's, it, this is the way, though, it works. And ironically, we're coming upon another campaign season where we're going to see commercial after commercial of I promise fill in the blank. And then two years in, we're like, how are you fulfilling your promises? And sadly, most of the commercials in our two-party system 
Most of the commercials are really built on competition. They don't say anything about what they're going to do. They tell us everything that their competitor has done or from the opposing party. And it's this competition that we find ourselves in the middle of trying to discern who has the character that I want to follow and who has the competency to fulfill this. This is what we're dealing with. Then the second one is careerism. Remember, we operate on this flesh operating system where there is a natural pull towards the self. We take good things and we make them ultimate things, as the late pastor Tim Keller said. We take good things, good things being it's okay to want to perform. It's okay to want to please others. It's okay to want to put in an honest day's word. It's when the gravitational pull in our hearts makes those things primary. When I'm operating out of just pleasing others, when I'm operating out of the job somehow defines my security or my identity, whatever it may be. And when we're operating out of that, oftentimes what we end up with is workaholism where we start making small decisions towards the great salary or the big house and neglecting our family in some cases along the way or for the single individual. We're all about the career. We're all about having this or these nice things, whatever it may be. Listen to me. The goal is not to get married. The goal is really to please God and be wed to him. That's the goal. Please hear me on that. But in that, we end up killing our souls because we're operating in a way that our hearts were never designed to operate, and that's putting self in the primary place. And so career becomes just one more thing that we go after. Notice what Jesus does. Jesus had to have this tension of, yet I'm in my father's house, I'm getting to know my heavenly father. Please hear me. He wasn't immediately downloaded in a way that when he was born, he came out of the womb saying, I'm the Messiah, you all. It didn't work that way. I imagine that Joseph was having conversations with his son and said, let me tell you about a dream I had. Let me tell you about this move that we made when you didn't even know it. And you've read the Old Testament text that we read every time we go to Jerusalem, son, that I was told to go back to that place in Egypt. And let me tell you about another dream. Let me tell you about shepherds that came the night that you were born, talking about the good news. And yet just a few years later, these same shepherds were out tending to their flocks and they hear the cry of children because of the two-year-olds that were killed by this paranoid king. Wondering if this is real. Let me tell you about that first time that you told me that you were in your father's house and I was the guy that married your mother when she was pregnant. And the reflection that had on me. I think these were very real conversations. And what Jesus saw from his earthly father 
was a loyal commitment. Was a loyal commitment. And then it says at the end of Luke 2 that Jesus left his father's house, returned to Nazareth, and was submissive to his parents. Think about that for a moment. The Son of God is leaving, is leaving Jerusalem to go back to Nazareth to submit to do two earthly parents. These are the steps. These are the steps that we get to follow in. And I do mean get to. Number three, comparison. Comparison is like an aggressive canceler, cancer, but sadly not a rare cancer. As one preacher says, we live in the land of Ur. There is always some, someone prettier, richer, better, bigger, smaller than you or I. And we're constantly comparing. Sadly, this is a major narrative in the world of social media. Some of the parents in the room, you see other parents posting an Instagram photo of their kids as if they're the greatest parents since sliced bread, and their kids are like sons and daughters of God. And they are, but they're not flawless. <laughs> but the picture is flawless. With every new phone comes a new filter. Every picture looks better than the real event, right? And so we live, we operate out of this insecurity. We are constantly comparing, and this hinders any growth of our character. Like a garden, you have to keep predators out, and comparison will slowly eat away at the fruit attempting to grow. It takes time. In closing, both my wife and I knew the transition of resigning and waiting for the Lord to reveal our next place would be difficult for our kids. I have a 13, 10, and 7-year-old. So my 13-year-old is just about to start the 8th grade. And so I was, uh, you know, there were many times, many, in 19 years, I've never had a sabbatical. I would not call this a sabbatical. <laughs> But I've never had a sabbatical. And so I've been able to take my middle schooler to school for the first time ever. And it was a lot of silent drives with him in the car. I mean, absolute quiet. I knew that he was frustrated. I told him in the beginning when I told him that I resigned, I said to him, you have permission to feel. You can feel angry, sad, frustrated. This is a safe place to do that. Just know that. But I need to know, do you trust your dad? He said, I trust you, dad. But it was a lot of silent drive. I mean, it flipped overnight. He went from researching cities that we could be in based on their NBA teams to a uh, true story to he did not want to be in the same room with me in some ways. And so we drove to school and we would drive to basketball practice and just these silent drives. And that is when I recognize that God is a lot better at being God than I am. That I'm responsible as a gardener for my kid's character. And I didn't by any means create an atmosphere for him not to thrive. But I could not deny what we heard. And so just a few weeks ago on Father's Day, he gives me... Um, he gives me a card, and I just want to read it. He said, Happy Father's Day, Dad. 
We love you so much. And I know we're in a tough spot right now in our lives, but you, uh, but I've been more excited than scared now because of talking about it with you. I love how you're always here for me and love me. Also, you always think about other people and not just you. And I just needed to put that last part in there just so you know I'm pretty good at what I do. I'm totally kidding. Um, Because he misses the moments when I don't get the salty and sweet snack for his mom. So this meant the world to me. Doesn't mean he's not going to have bad days. See, I remember, I remember when I was 12 years old and I sat in the judge's office and he asked my brother and I, how does it feel? How does it feel to be adopted? My biological father left four years prior to this moment, never to return. But on this day, On this day, there was one that was choosing to be committed to me and our family. Now, what made this a bit interesting is my new dad was only 13 years older than me, all right? So my birth certificate reads my father was 13 and my mother was 23 when they had me. So when people see my birth certificate, I'm like, he started young. (laughs) He He had an exceptional game, all right? So... But sitting in that judge's office that day was the first time I felt chosen. My adopted dad does not follow Jesus. But he was the first man that showed me loyal commitment. He was committed to me and our family. And that's when bad news became better news. The bad news was I had to learn there was another father who first had to say no. To make this adoption possible. Oftentimes, that no from an earthly dad is projected onto a heavenly father. But what the scriptures tell us over and over again, beginning with the people of Israel and Israel, that Israel is his beloved son. And Jesus picks up that message. And even the Old Testament gives the image of carrying the son through because of his love for them. And Jesus picks up that message, if you remember, when he is being baptized in the Jordan River and he hears the voice of God that says what? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And the rest of the New Testament picks up on this language of you and I being adopted into this family. That we had a father who stepped in on our behalf, sent his son, dying the death that we deserve to die so that we may live. You see how this fruit works? It's this constant living and dying. And he lived this fruit-bearing life and we are that fruit and we get to live with him. You see, God is asking us to become faithful. Why? Because he has been faithful to us. The apostle Paul will write elsewhere, he who began a good work in you will see it through to the day of its completion. Please hear me. As we step into a time of communion, the growth may appear to be slow, but it really is happening. May we follow 
the way of Jesus who is obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that we may be raised with him. That's why this tension during communion, partaking of the Lord's Supper, is really this tension of someone had to die so that I can live. That there was a father who stepped in long before the creation of this world and said yes to us. Catch this, before we ever said no to him. That's who he is. That's why we become people that are faithful. That's life in the spirit. That is the fruit that the world is longing for. Let me pray for us.